At this time of Samhain, when the veils between the worlds are thin, through the power of one mind, with the pure love of one heart, we open a portal to the other side. We peel back the veil and we call to those of our ancestors and beloved dead who would like to experience this time of magic with us. We invite them to be fully present in this sacred space, to see through our eyes, to move through our bodies, to speak through our words, and to dance in this space with us until we close our circle when they will return across the Great Divide. We welcome the ancestors. Blessed be. Pass through the portal, go through the gate, enter and be reborn. Pass through the portal, go through the gate, enter and be reborn. Pass through the portal, go through the gate, enter and be reborn. Pass through the portal, go through the gate, enter and be reborn. Well, good evening and welcome, my dear listeners, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, where myself and my guests, uh, we try to speak truth to patriarchal power, to predator capitalism, and we have the courage to propose a new normal in society, to work toward manifesting that new normal in the world so that the most of us have a better quality of life. Because, you know, there is an alternative to the patriarchal order, though they'd prefer you not know it. It hasn't always been this way, and it doesn't have to continue as it is. There is an alternative to predator capitalism that exploits workers, the environment, and humanity across the globe. We can have a world where women are equal and 70% of us don't retire in poverty or are punished for the male dogma of Eve's sin. The alternative is sacred feminine liberation theology, as I've written about in my book, Goddess Calling, offering not just inspiration and meditations, but messages many readers have called comfort food to help us find our way during this evolution. Well, thank you for being with me tonight. I know there's lots of other choices out there uh, for you to spend your time and your interest, and I promise tonight's show will not disappoint, uh, as I have returning to the show the very interesting and insightful Gianna Ciccelli discussing the sociology of religion versus magic and witchcraft, who will also be presenting this topic in person this Saturday night at the Goddess Temple of Orange County as they unveil their next installment of the Joseph Campbell Roundtables in Irvine. But first, a thank you to Abigail Spinner McBride for the use of her music. And tonight's snippet comes from uh, the cut um, uh, Pass Through the Portal. Now, it isn't Samhain. You don't think you're losing your mind. I know it is Mercury retrograde and we're all a little frazzled. But um, I can't think of a better cut to talk about tonight's topic. 
uh, with magic and witchcraft because Samhain is the time of the year that that's uh, that's what you'll that's when the media I guess I should say that's when the media starts to pay attention uh, to magic and witchcraft. And Abigail uh, Spinner McBride, she is just one of the many generous artists who lend their music to the show. And if you like what you hear, I hope you'll check out more of the work of Abigail. Also, some of the other artists, Celia, Zingaya, Laura Kane, Lisa Thiel, Be Optimistic, and many other artists whose work you hear on the show. So stay with us as we open the portal. But just a few more things uh, before we start our chat. Um, I am wondering if uh, you heard about Elizabeth Bing. It came across the Internet um, yesterday, I believe. Uh, She died at uh, the ripe old age of 100 years old. You know, I didn't know who she was until uh, yesterday, but Elizabeth Bing uh, was called the mother of Lamaze. Uh, who changed how babies enter the world, and uh, apparently she had based her her beliefs and her teachings uh, and practice on the work of Dr. Ferdinand Lamaze. She led a very interesting life and contributed so much to women everywhere. I was reading the New York Times article about her life, and um, I want to just share the last couple paragraphs because it uh, it feels appropriate somehow. Um, Ms. Bing was modest about her role in the Lamaze movement. Uh, She said, uh, it wasn't really a movement by Lamaze or me, uh, she told the Disney-owned website Family.com. It was a consumer movement. The time was ripe. The public doubted everything their parents had done. But she rejoiced in the outcome. Uh, And she said, uh, we are not being tied down anymore. Uh, She said this in 2000. She said, we're not lying flat on our backs with our legs in the air, shaved like a baby. You can give birth in any position you like. The father or anybody else can be there. We fought for years on end for that, and now it's commonplace. We've got it all. Well, uh, the article goes on to say, Lamaze himself did not even acknowledge uh, Ms. Bing, who made uh, his work so well-known around the world. He never responded to her request for an interview, even though she had made his name part of the American vernacular. During their only meeting at a lunch in New York, he directed all his comments to a male obstetrician at the table. She said... I never thought of of myself as someone with a legacy of any kind. I hope I have made women aware that they have choices. They can get to know their body and trust their body. And if my ideas supported feminist ideas, she continued, well, that's all right, but I've never been politically active. I just found that so interesting that, um, you know, here this woman made this guy famous and he didn't even have the decency to address her when three, you know, he and another person and she uh, were sitting at a table together. It uh, just really sort of make you, makes you scratch your head. But, uh, you know, I've been catching up on the Mad Men uh, uh, shows, you know, and um, things things were different. You know, things were so different. And I don't think you could get away with doing something like that today, but we forget that there was a time when that was just absolutely okay. And um, 
On to something else uh, real quick. I wonder if you know about the Pagan Community Statement uh, on the Environment. Um, many contemporary pagans uh, feel a sense of spiritual connection with the earth and try to actively cultivate a harmonious relationship with the non-human natural world. In this time of accelerating environmental change, uh, many pagans feel a sense of urgency to help transform humanity's relationship with the earth. And this sense of urgency is what drew together a large and diverse group of pagan writers, artists, and scholars. Uh, and they've drafted a pagan community statement on the environment. And I wanted to make sure you knew about that because they're asking for uh, you to participate. Uh, they just want you to sign their statement. Uh, the statement was published at ecopagan.com on Earth Day this year. Uh, thousands of pagans from all over the world have already signed it, uh, even people who don't identify as pagans. And their goal is to collect 10,000 signatures by June 22nd when the Pope's environmental statement is anticipated. So please, uh, you can go read and sign the statement at ecopagan.com. That's ecopagan.com. So please, um, go check it out. Tell your friends. Share it around. Uh, let's add some more signatures. Um, heck, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's blow them away. We can collect more than 10,000 signatures. 10,000 signatures should be a drop in the bucket. All right, um, let's turn our attention to tonight's show. And uh, if you haven't heard uh, of tonight's guest before um, or you've missed our past interviews, you want to go back through the archives and make sure you give a listen. Uh, Gianna Ciccelli is with me, and let me tell you a little bit more uh, about her before uh, we start our chat. Uh, she, has, uh, uh, she holds a B.A. in sociology from uh, UC Santa Cruz and an M.A. in sociology from Cal State Fullerton with an emphasis in religion. Uh, Gianna is a professor of sociology, a shamanic practitioner, and a witch. Her master's thesis entitled A Living Religion, Modern Witchcraft and Shamanism from a Sociological Perspective sought to bring the concept of magic into the literature regarding sociology of religion. Professor Ciccelli's research uh, interests include religion, gender, sexuality, feminism, and privilege. Her research interest is currently on various definitions of magic and prayer. She loves to travel uh, and go on wild adventures whenever she's uh, got the time and uh, in her spare time when she uh, gets quiet. She is a painter and a writer and a professional mystic in Los Angeles. So Gianna, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, well, I'm so glad to have you, and I'm uh, happy that you're going to be uh, participating in the um, Joseph Campbell Roundtable series as well. I think this is going to be a really awesome interview tonight and then a follow-up on Saturday for folks who are local and you know maybe aren't listening to us tonight. Yeah, should be good. It should be exciting. So, um, you know, I, I don't remember if I asked you this the last time we chatted. Uh, I know we did a wonderful uh, interview on the 
the wonders of despacho rituals and uh, because you so blew me away when I took your class and uh, you know it, it just felt like those despacho rituals were I don't know just for some reason to me a more potent form of magic but you know I forget did um, did we talk about how you got interested in sociology and in religions um, you know how did, how did you come to this Oh, okay. <laughs> it's kind of flipping the script. Usually people ask me how I got involved in magic. Uh, <laughs> I rarely get the question of how I got involved in sociology, so I appreciate that. Uh, well, doesn't one, sort of, doesn't one sort of lead to the other in a way? But Or, or maybe that's you, part of the story. You know, I, I agree, actually. I believe that uh, my sociological background made it um, more interesting as I pursued magic, Wicca, witchcraft, and shamanism. Um, so, um, let's see, I, I went back to school <laughs> in uh, 2002, 2003, because I had uh, dropped out for a little bit. Uh, and when I went back to school, I was planning on being an English major. Uh, but the English professor that I had at the time uh, was not inspiring. <laughs> I had a difficult time in that class. Uh, and in that same semester, I was taking Intro to Sociology. And sociology explained a lot of my, uh, a lot of the things that I didn't understand when I was traveling. Because, you know, during the time that I dropped out, I had traveled and, you know, uh, become some, somewhat of a deviant. Uh, so taking a sociology course explained that um, my experience through, like, concepts and through a lens of perspective. Um, and as well, I continue to take those, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, doesn't, and I want you to continue, but I, I just want to interject here. Doesn't sociology really sort of help us understand the world and why it's the way it is to a certain extent and how people react the way they do? I mean, it's sort of the study of society, or, I mean, mm -hmm. if I'm absolutely totally wrong, that's okay. You're not going to embarrass no. me by telling me. <laughs> no, you're completely right. Yeah, it's the study of society, the study of social groups. And in order to study society, you have to question everything that you took to believe is natural. So similar to magic and witchcraft, where you have to, again, unlearn everything that you were learned in order to engage in the mysteries of life. Uh, it's that same sort of uh, practice, this questioning, this taking yourself, yourself out of the familiar and into a very like alien reality and looking at it from the outside as much as you can because, you know, it's difficult to completely extricate yourself from social norms in, in society in sure. general. Sure, you yeah. have to get out of the bubble. I mean, some people never get out of the bubble. They don't even know they're in a bubble. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So so you said you, 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 did I hear you right? You said you thought you, uh, you felt like you were a, a, a deviant? Is that the word you oh, yeah. used? Yeah, deviant. Yeah, definitely. Um, so in sociology, a deviant or to be deviant is to just go against social norms. So in the late 90s, um, realizing I'm a lesbian, that was deviant. <laughs> I mean, homosexuality now, though it is not the norm, is, uh, is accepted as a norm of society in that people, there are going to be homosexuals. It is a norm to have homosexuals within society, though that percentage is going to be low. Uh, whereas in like the late 90s, to be a homosexual was deviant, at least in Orange okay. County where I was growing up. 
So um, well, well, you know, I then, mean, I think any of us, any of us that don't conform, I guess, you know, some probably the prevailing status quo would think we're deviant. I mean, exactly. I grew up in yeah, the South, absolutely. and if if I wasn't a racist, I was probably a deviant. If if I right. was friends with gay people and transgenders, I was probably a deviant. You know, exactly. um, if yeah, I exactly. if I wasn't into Christianity and I wasn't, I, I mean, I was. I, I we're we're co deviants. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Indeed. And I I would argue most people on this path are and have to be because we are going against the social norm. Uh, just like you in the beginning of this podcast when you were talking about. Um, you know, fighting against patriarchal, aggressive capitalism. That is a deviant ideology. <laughs> like we are oh, well. <laughs> deviant. No, and, and deviant is not a bad word. Um, I think maybe right. um, that might be the, yeah, so in, in sociology, right, in societies, there's always deviant um, aspects of society. And oftentimes, I would say all times, the deviant aspect is what ends up helping to evolve and change the norms. Hmm. Or it so, reifies norms. So, like, if somebody's deviant by being a murderer, that reifies or like reconstitutes within the mind of the society that murder is bad. Whereas, if people go against the dominant religion for more freedom or more equality, then the the dominant groups in society look to that and say, you know, that's actually kind of a good idea. I think we should maybe evolve. <laughs> right. So, our our great revolutionaries, even Jesus, um, they were the deviants of their time. Super deviant. Super deviant. Yeah. Jesus uh, created the cult <laughs> of his religious practice uh, because it had very few followers. Uh, it was against the dominant religion of the time. Uh, so, yeah, he was definitely a deviant and the and the creator of the cult. I'm imagining heads exploding, um, Gianna. I mean, can can you imagine heads exploding if people who don't understand the context of what we're talking about and they hear us called Jesus a deviant? <laughs> it's a miracle. I know, right? Right? <laughs> so, yeah, so you go ahead. Well, so you think it was um, you discovering that you were a lesbian that was sort of the trigger for you? Um, yeah, that was the trigger for me to fall away from Christianity. Um, but also I, there was, there was two very significant, significant experiences within Christianity. So growing up, I was raised, uh, in a non-denominational, mostly Christian, uh, evangelical type of, uh, church background, whatever. And uh, I was really into it. I was super duper into it. But like, I'm a woman, <laughs> and I have a very strong personality. So I always expected to like be a leader in the church. Uh, and in high school, I was part of Club Truth, which is the uh, Christian club at the at the high school campus. And we all had needed to take a vote for the president of the club for the next year, and we had all voted in this in this woman. And the next week, the, the current president came in and said, okay, we have to take a revote because a woman can't lead in the church. And I was like, what? <laughs> huh? So, you, so you, uh, found, you found out you could dust the altar, but you couldn't lead from the altar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I found out, oh, I'm a second-class citizen here. All right. Uh, and, oh, and then, I'm, then I realized I'm, I'm a homosexual. So I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to stop trying. This is not working in my favor. So I fell away from the church and became agnostic and was working at Tower Records. And we were all talking about, you know, alternative religions and reading books on uh, Zen Buddhism, which at the time I was extremely angry. So it was sort of ironic that I was trying to get into Zen. Um, 
<laughs> uh, and it was at that point that I found a, a, a Wicca 101 class in, in uh, Brea, of all places, deep in the heart of Orange County. Uh, so from there, that's how I started up with uh, witchcraft. But sociology came, I would say, around the same time or like a year later or maybe a year before. Maybe sociology was a year before. So um, they kind of happened at the same time, actually. I never thought about that, yeah. Okay, all right. So so now, um, obviously from your, uh, you know, the the topic of our talk tonight, uh, when Mm -hmm. academics look at magic and witchcraft, um, Mm. am I right to assume they don't see a religion, they see something different? Yeah, okay, so it gets kind of confusing. I've been sort of stressing about this for a couple months now, trying to figure it out, because Magic and witchcraft in the paradigm of a neo-pagan movement, uh, Wicca, goddess movement, anything of those sorts, is considered an emergent religion or um, a new religious movement. We've moved away from the term cult because it's got such a negative association in our in our collective understanding of the word. But um, so, like, just a new religious movement. Uh, Those are considered within the religious under within religion, but all the textbooks that I found will take particular, like a particular point to point out witchcraft and magic as different from religion. So like at the beginning of the textbook, it's like, let's define religion, which is a very difficult process. And then, and this is magic and witchcraft, and let's define these things, and now we'll tell you why we don't consider these religions. Uh, which is interesting, right? Because so they're saying pre-modern magic they use the word primitive but i'm i'm not in agreement with that word uh when magic and witchcraft was used in those uh, at those times it was not a religion because of these various differences uh but in the current era as we are seeing the neo pagan movement that is a religious practice but again hmm. they're not talking about magic it's it's very interesting and kind of confusing which is why i wanted to present on it <laughs> Oh, okay, so wait, let me just say to you what I think you just said, just to make sure okay. moving forward we're on the same page. Okay, so the textbooks say that the old the old um, paganism, I'm, I'm just going to mm-hmm. use that as a term, the old paganism, Greek, Rome, all of that stuff, the magic and, you know, the magic and witchcraft, and I guess that's maybe a word to use loosely too because they might not have used that word to describe what they're, their practices, but their magic mm-hmm. and witchcraft, they considered that religion. But because um, we are reconstructing a new religion, and it's this mm-hmm. you know, new sort of movement in a sense, they don't think magic and witchcraft is a religion for the new people to paganism. Actually, or did I get that backwards? So- yeah, so so uh, yeah, just flip that. So new practitioners of magic and religion, uh, magic and witchcraft are act- actively involved in new religious movements. So it is considered under the religious definition. But the olden times of magic and witchcraft, and I want to say they're mostly talking about animism and shamanism, okay. is not okay. religion. And why? I mean, <laughs> what's the what's the dis- I, I would almost think it would be the other way around. You know, because uh, 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 um, I know, so why? Right? it's really confusing, right? So from what I can tell, this is what's happening. 
uh, in the olden times, uh, you could not separate the word religion from the understanding of reality within the society. So the entire society in olden times uh, practiced animism and understood their world through animism. And in that way, there was like a shamanic practitioner or a witch doctor or or that magical practitioner um, or a handful of them in the society. But the majority of society is not the magical practitioners, right? But they live their lives under this understanding, this cosmovision or this cosmology uh, that is not, it doesn't separate religion, um, the sacred from the profane. Everything is part of the religion. You cannot subtract the religion out. Whereas in modern times, we can say, well, that's a religious act, and that's not a religious act. So we can, separate, we can take religion out of, like, the overall understanding of reality and define it. Seems to be what they're pointing to. But it's very confusing because that, that in my point of view, from what I'm seeing, it's like comparing different worldviews. Yeah. Current understanding, like the current worldview tends to be future time-oriented, very individualistic, etc. Um, and in that time period, if they weren't future time-oriented and they were now time-oriented, that would dictate their understanding of reality. Does that make hmm. sense? Did I just make sense? <laughs> um, say, I, I think so. I think I almost have it. Can you say it a different way and maybe I, I, it'll solidify in my head? Right. Okay. So because you – okay, so – my understanding is that the the major like um, let me let me rephrase. Okay, so olden time practice of animism was so all encompassed in every aspect of reality that you could not take the word religion and point to certain actions as being religious because all actions in that society were intertwined with their religious views. Got it. As well as everything else. So the economy, okay. the politics, and the religious views were all intertwined. You could not take one out and point to it and define it. Okay. Uh, and in that way, that worldview uh, is different than our current worldview. In our current worldview, we can definitely take things out. Okay, well, that's ec- economy, and that's, and that's you know different because of this definition, and that's religious belief, and that's different because of this definition. And my economy doesn't necessarily intertwine with my religious belief at all. I go to church on Sunday, but I go to work at the stock market during the weekend. Right. I can right. live with those two realities, not necessarily even agreeing with each other, <laughs> but somehow it works. Okay, so, so all right, so I'm I'm going to throw this hypothetical at you, okay? okay. So in 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 ancient times, somebody let's mm. just say makes an offering to a deity and does a mm. does does a magical ritual. Um mm-hmm. academics um don't really see that as magic and witchcraft where if we did that today, they would. The same exact act they they differentiate between because we are not animist we you know our, our whole world view is not all um you know it it is it isn't all our our spirituality and all of these other aspects of our lives aren't intertwined right right so i would say like um what was the the example you gave at the beginning somebody uh, gave an alt an offering to the altar 
Um, I think that they might consider that magic depending on the context. It seems like many of the writers of sociology of religion were coming from a very ethnocentric point of view and viewing olden time uh, supplication and reverence of deities to be different than current supplication and reverence of deity uh, because of their interaction with the expected outcome. Uh, that was a whole mouthful. Um. <laughs> so the expected <laughs> outcome seems to be the differ, uh where they differentiate. How is my outcome, you know, hoping that ISIS is going to help me get a job, different right. from the former who makes the offering to ISIS because he wants his crops to grow so he doesn't right. starve and isn't destitute? Right. right. I totally Academia agree with you. Academia is weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Academia is weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I mean, do you think it's just they're out of touch, or do you think they have some? There's some legitimate basis for this. Um, I think they were out of touch because a lot of these definitions are coming from the time of Emil Durkheim and the beginnings of sociology. Um, so, in the beginnings of sociology, as they set down these definitions, they came from a very ethnocentric point of view that viewed modern religious practice as being a form of humility rather than pride, as a form of obedience and supplication um, rather than taking power, right? But I would say that has to do with the context of the society. In a society where religion is put forth, a mon- let's say uh, Christianity, a monotheistic religion is put forth as a means of social control and generally religion is a means of social control, setting forth the rules put down by deities. Um, If that God requires complete reverence and that you give up the power, that seems to do more good for the political elite and the power elite than it does for the people. Um, Mm -hmm. The the writers of sociology of religion saying that it has to do with humility uh, and framing the practitioners of prayer and Christianity at that time as being humble and more virtuous are are passing um, value judgments on a practice that is dictated by the power elite, where the power elite at another time period, um, when they um, had many gods and you were supposed to do rituals to keep your farm crops growing or whatever, uh, that would be the context of their society and of their culture. So to compare the two of them and say that one is more religious than the other um, seems ethnocentric, like they are just out of touch with the idea that there are differing worldviews, and in order to practice your religious belief, it has to be within the context of your worldview. So how you, were, how you were socialized into your society, how reality works for you, how you view the world is basically your worldview. And most people have very similar worldviews uh, when they're socialized within a society or raised within a society. So... Um, we're both in America, raised in America with American worldviews. We tend to be future time oriented. That's an American worldview. Whereas in, you know, pre-modern times when people were more focused on ancestor worship, so past time worldview, or living in the now, um, those are different worldviews. And so they set different contexts for religious practice. Hmm. All right, well, wait a second. Maybe you need to define for me what is future time-oriented, because are we not living in the now? I mean, how how were the, how was their living in the now different from our living in the now? Because I don't know, maybe I just don't understand uh, future 
future time oriented? Right. Um, I would say it, it is a little it's a little confusing, but this is how I would understand it. Like we in modern times are told through various religious practices that our goal is to live in the now, to not look to the future, to not look to the past, relinquish all of our chains that would uh, well, chain us to those perspectives so that we can be free of those trappings and live in the now. Um, but that's sort of like in modern time, that's a goal that we are um, we are trying to achieve in a society that tells us we need to look for our 401ks, we need to save for the future, we need to make good investments, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Ah, so or I was American wondering is it, could it could the future? I mean, maybe maybe this is totally different. Uh, future time oriented is that also that we're going to get our reward in heaven? So um, right. su- yes. suffer, you know, it's okay to suffer now, tolerate the right. suffering, and endure yes. the exploitation because you're going to mm-hmm. get your reward when you die. Exactly. So this is a salvation. Uh, it's like a. It's a. That's salvation uh, terminology, right? It's all about salvation in the future, and that's definitely future time oriented. And I, I kind of try to make that point um, in that that religious understanding could not have taken hold in a culture that was either past time oriented or now time oriented, because people would hmm. say, "No, I don't care about the future, right? I want yeah. you know my my conditions of living are bad in the now, but in a society that now has." their reality is future time oriented and they're looking towards the future and they're putting away savings and they're suffering now to put away for the salvation in the future. Yeah, those two things go together. Well, and you know, in in here, and maybe this is off track a little bit, but let me just throw Hmm. this out at you. Whenever I hear a religion that says sacrifice, Hmm. suffer, you're going to get your reward, you know, when you pass away, you know, you're going to, when you hit the pearly gates or you get the 50 virgins or whatever it is, it always seems like, and maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like this is just um, the message to the masses to mm-hmm. try to create this group think where you just endure any shitty um, mm-hmm. conditions that you have to live under so that you don't rock the boat. Yeah, mm-hmm. most definitely. I definitely agree with that. Um, religion is always used as a tool of social control. So when the elite have a religious that says, suffer in the now for your, you know, reward when you die, then people are not going to rise up. They're going to view their suffering as proving their devotion to their religion or their deity. Uh, Karl Marx totally agrees with us. (laughs) Okay. He said that religion was the opiate of the masses, subduing them to, you know, accept their lot in life instead of rising up. Interesting. And I definitely agree. I definitely agree with that. Well, then maybe Karl Marx would have liked goddess spirituality because it's not about conforming. It is about rising up. It is about liberation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, but I don't think, you know, he probably wouldn't have liked any religion. <laughs> yeah, he was kind of, yeah, he was sort of like, I think he was into like proletariat uprising. So the goddess movement as a proletariat uprising, definitely. But as soon as it gets co-opted by the power elite and made the dominant religion or 
the state's religion, right, then he would be against it. Because uh, in, from what I can tell, any time a religion becomes organized and, like, put forth by the state, then it becomes another socialism uh, tool of social control. Yeah, so you're just traded masters in a sense. Yeah. And you know, I kind of uh, want to go to that, too. Like, if you think about it, in our modern worldview, uh, specifically in America, America is predominantly a Christian country, uh, statistically, um, we I have heard many times people in, like, um, neo-pagan or goddess spirituality, you know, they'll say, oh, thank goddess, or goddess will, you know, uh, in the way that they're just substituting the word goddess instead of how they used to use the word god. Mm-hmm. What that tells me is they haven't changed their overarching understanding of the cosmos, they've just brought in a feminine deity, but that that deity still is an archetypical figure that controlled them in the way that the old God controlled them. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, but I think... It's not always true. Well, no, mm. no, no, but no, no, but that's true. That's true. I mean, I do, mm. I do the very same thing. But I think the way, the way, um, I'll just speak for myself. The way I rationalize mm. it is, the the God religion was the religion of oppression that marginalized me. Where the mm. goddess religion is the opposite. It liberates me. It it uh, helps me reach my fullest potential, um, mm. and it still helps to think in times of. Um, duress that there's mm. something out there bigger than yourself, you know, that right. that maybe right. can help you or, you know, energies you can tap into to maybe make your circumstances better. Right, totally. Does that make, is there a difference, uh, you think? Well, if, if, well, the, see, if the deity... Uh, know, it's, a, it's a small difference. It seems to be the difference of the name. But when you're socialized under a worldview or a cosmological understanding, it's very difficult to untrain yourself from that uh, adherence. So you're seeing the goddess movement and goddess spirituality as being freeing, and I totally agree. But sometimes when we don't know how to evolve our personal um, understandings of that, we will just take the god that we had before and make it a goddess and then associate with her types of freedom but not change our worldview. Does that make sense? And I'm not saying it's a I bad thing. So. I'm just saying it's like part well, of the yeah, it's in, it. It's interesting to examine it, you know, to sort of take it mm-hmm. out and look at it, you know. Um, right. Well, that also, that also makes me um, think about how, you know, the ancient Greeks, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, all right, so our worldview, well, not everybody, but let's just say for for the sake of this conversation in this moment, that our worldview mm. is that there maybe is a deity out there who cares about us, we can pray to, and we can hope that we may get assistance if if necessary. Or, mm. but but what I understand with the ancient Greeks talk about different worldviews is that um, I don't think they saw the deities as. Uh, well, as the forces out there as deities, they were more cosmic forces um, mm-hmm. who were really sort of indifferent 
Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, it, or maybe it varied, you know, from place to place and time to time. But I remember, you know, hearing this conversation at the Getty from, uh, you know, among these scholars. You know, they were talking about Aphrodite. The whole day was this wonderful day of pay- people giving papers on Aphrodite, and they were saying mm-hmm. that uh, Aphrodite and Hermes were like uh, sort of like the dream team for politicians, for instance. They would, um, you know, they were their, the, the deities of politicians because Hermes was, was the cosmic force of um, uh, communication while Aphrodite was sort of the cosmic force of persuasion and attraction. And they they talked as if, or maybe this was just academic speak and I didn't get it, but they talked as if they were cosmic forces as opposed to, you know, deities that resided in the heaven that answered your prayers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, does, does that, <laughs> I, I mean... It, it, does that make sense to you? I mean, is is that um, part of maybe the the sociology you've run into? Um, you know, pagans of ancient times, or maybe I just misunderstood it. Um, uh, I don't, I don't really, I don't know. <laughs> it's, okay, uh, fair enough. I, don't, I guess I don't understand the question. <laughs> okay. Um, well, well, well. You know, I guess I, you know. I sort of lost track of the question too. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it, in in trying to explain it, I forgot why I was asking. Oh well, maybe it'll maybe it'll come back to me. Um, so, like, I th- were you kind of saying that, like, because they were archetypical energies that you could like sway, but that they really didn't really care. They weren't. In, you were saying they they sort of were indifferent to humanity, so you had to like sway them to do things for you. Is that what you were well, trying I, to say, like? Well, it was it's sort of a sort of well, we were talking about um, using the example of goddess people whose cosmology all we've done is sort of change the gender, you know. Right, and right, right. So, so I was saying, well, but but yet we are still whether we change the gender or not, we still pray to that deity and we. Mm-hmm think that that deity maybe will intercede and help us they're more mm-hmm. you know they're maybe they're an archetype maybe they're an ideal but they're also a force out there you know that can intercede and make our life better if we're if you know we catch their ear and you know we've been good devoted um you know right. uh you know worshipers but i right. i guess i wonder in ancient times was the cosmology was that relationship different um were they really seeing the you know hermes and aphrodite as deities that could intercede in their lives or did they just mm-hmm. maybe feel like they had to tap into that um, you know, it, it tap, tap into their energy of, um, you know, here, you know, maybe this is where we get into the the segue into the difference between magic and prayer. I don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Actually, so I don't know the answer on this one because we're, is this Roman or Greek? I can't remember. Um, but I don't know the specific context of that society. My guess would be that those were um, acting deities that you could interact with. Um, but I don't know for sure. Um, that being okay. said, r- what you said right before that, when you were talking about um, being a devoted follower, maybe you could catch the ear of the goddess to have her intercede on your behalf. Is that what you were saying? 
Yes, yes. I would say that 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 understanding of the goddess may come from a predominantly Christian worldview in that the prayer in Christianity tends to have less power, whereas the prayer or magic in uh, Wicca or witchcraft um, has the possibility for giving you access, greater access to um, a deity to interact with you and to um, act on your behalf. So, like, I guess what I'm seeing or what I'm hearing is, like, a very similar understanding because of the the current worldview. And I'm not saying that's constant. Like, we evolve and change as our as our uh, religious practice continues, our relationships with these deities evolve and change. Um, but I would say, like, magic, right, one of the differences is that uh, magical practitioners are not required to give up their power. Whereas in dominant monotheistic religions, the practitioner or the the uh, follower is is asked to not to give up their power, to not take power, to be uh, a humble servant of God. Ah, okay. I didn't I didn't realize that. That's a new one on me. Um, I <laughs> well, I'll, I'll admit right here and now, I wasn't I you know I I wasn't always paying attention when I was uh, in Catholic school. So I, maybe I missed. I, maybe I missed the. I should. I should be humble. Part. Um, I didn't really think about that. <laughs> um, okay. So so that's an interesting. Um, I'd never heard that distinction between magic and prayer before. That is really interesting. So well, so then. It's sort of a thing I keep seeing. I keep meeting um, Christians. I don't know if, I, if I've if i heard it from Catholics as much, but I've met a lot of Christians who will, if I start telling them about magic and witchcraft or whatever, um, if I ever bring up the word power, they freak out and say, no, I have no power but for God. So it's hmm. that that I started to infer like, oh, oh, you become a humble servant of God and you are, you ask, you know, you supplicate for for his forgiveness or for his his intercession in your life, but ultimately you don't grab power and work as a co-conspirator with God. You are definitely uh, on a lesser uh, level. I mean, but not to say magical practitioners are on the equal level with deities, but we tend to revere, revere deities in a different way than uh, current dominant religion. Yeah, I, I mean, it's like we don't have to be on on our knees in supplication, so to speak. Right, um, right. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Although I would I get say that. we do supplicate, but just in different ways. It depends on the archetype of our god or our deity, right? So mm-hmm. if um, if my deity is a trickster, then my form of supplication or obeisance, deferential respect, um, is has more to do with uh, being playful with that deity, also uh, maybe a bit antagonistic and reverent uh, without giving over my power. So uh, whereas like maybe a love goddess would be different, right? Our mm-hmm. forms of how we show deference to these deities are specific to their energy, to their archetype and what they like. Yeah, because but I'm usually we have a relationship, yeah. Yeah, and I and I'm thinking. Look, and I could be wrong. You know, Kali priestess out there may, you know, may say, Karen, you don't know what you're talking about. And admittedly, admittedly, Kali is not my, you know, my first deity of choice. But when I look mm-hmm. at a Kali or I look at a Sekhmet, you know, they are mm-hmm. trying. You know, I feel like those are archetypes that, um, you know, we use or or deities we would like to embody, whatever words you want to use, that or to build us up. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's a, a so we certainly wouldn't be this 
you know, hairball in the corner kind of a thing. You know, I, I can't imagine Sepmet expecting, you know, her worshipers to um, not have some, you know, have some backbone, so to speak. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. So your interactions with, like, a warrior goddess are going to be different in the way that you are reverent because sometimes showing reverence is to show yourself as a warrior. You're showing that archetype, uh, the similarity within you, and that is, like, the greatest form of reverence, you know. Um, yeah, so exactly. Okay. Well, all yeah. right, so 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 let's let's think about this a little bit. You know, sticking with the prayer versus mm-hmm. magic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so you mentioned Christianity. In Christianity, mm-hmm. you're required... Um, or, you know, we're, we're talking about the humble supplicant. Um, mm-hmm. What about the other patriarchal religions? I mean, I don't know them that well. Or, or the mm-hmm. the devoted supposed to be humble supplicants mm-hmm. as well. You know, say in Judaism um, or Islam. I would Islam. say in all the so Judaism, Islam, and Christianity are all the Abrahamic religions, and so they all actually work with the same deity, though they have different names. So Allah is God, is Jehovah. They're all the same. Um, they sort of like veer off on particular aspects, but they're basically the Abrahamic God. Um, so their relationship to that God is very, very similar in all ways. Does that make sense? Um, mm-hmm. I, I am not as familiar with all the dominant religions, <laughs> so I can, you know, I can try. Um, where Buddhism doesn't really have a deity, right? It has um, it, it's guiding a guiding premise for how to live life and to alleviate yourself from suffering. Um, prayer would be uh, synonymous with meditation at that point, but meditation is used as a form of uh, thanksgiving and I would say contemplation. So I found this article that defined and categorized different forms of prayer. And this was, this was the big crux of like, yes, categories for prayer. This is what I was looking for. And it was in uh, talking about Christianity specifically, I believe. And it, was talk, it said the five different forms of prayer are adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and contemplation. So within these, these are the five ways in which people pray. And as I read that, I was like, yes, that, that's what I'm looking for. That is the same thing you do in magic as well. You might say that supplication, as it is understood in uh, the Abrahamic religions, is a form of, like, begging for, you know, please save my child or please save this person or please save me from economic ruin, where you would do a form of supplication within witchcraft and magic, but it wouldn't. it would have more power. You would have a different... Um, relationship to the power dynamic where supplication in Abrahamic tradition is going to be completely powerless and a form of begging. Uh, Supplication in a witchcraft tradition is not going to be the same type of begging, although sometimes it is, right? Sometimes we see practitioners begging uh, to particular deities for um, saving in one way or another. Um, Now I lost where I was going with that. (laughs) Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, well, well, you were you were saying that the uh, you know the 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 differences in well go, well it kind of goes back to or or we coming from a position of power, you know, mm-hmm. or a position of powerlessness, maybe. Right. Um, right. You know, you 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 aren't the hairball in the corner um, mm-hmm. with Wicca. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you you don't lose. You know, you can still. Um, 
I don't know, it seems to you can still have more of your sense of self. And Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and I hope this doesn't deviate too much from where we're going with this, but it reminds me of a conversation I was having with a woman. Um, mm-hmm. She was talking about um, she was having trouble finding Christians who had had experiences of God, um, mm-hmm. and I said to her, um, "Well, maybe you should talk to pagans." Because mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. you're a woman in an Abrahamic faith, for instance, mm-hmm. and I'm and I'm hi- hypothesizing here, okay? If mm-hmm. you're a relig- if if you're a woman in an Abrahamic religion and you've been marginalized and you're a second class citizen, add to that mm-hmm. the fact that we're taught that you need a priest or a rabbi or or an imam or something like that to be your inter- intercessor. Uh, between you and God, you don't have that direct pipeline, then Mm -hmm. I can understand maybe why you would have trouble finding Christians, especially women, who um, have had an experience of God, where with pagans, Mm -hmm. we are not that, you know, we're not that beat down, you know. Um, Yeah, but we also expect our gods to interact with us. Yeah. That's something we're sort of taught. As we yeah. initiate, we learn that the gods will interact. Whereas I want to say in the Abrahamic religion, you are taught that miracles occur, <laughs> but that God God interacting with humans isn't as normative, I would say. Yeah. You can pray, and you have a direct pipeline to prayer, unless you're Catholic, right? Then you have to go through the priest. Um, and that was what the Protestant Reformation was, was breaking away from the control of the priest being the intermediary between the person and God. So now the Protestants are like, no, we don't need your priest. We can pray on our own and we can talk to God ourselves. But the expectation was not for revelation, for God mm-hmm. to reveal and show um, his awe and power unless it's through miracles. Um, so prayer is being answered. Right. And and I think as a Catholic, Mary was supposed to be Mm. the go-between, you know, Mm. or she could be. Maybe she didn't have to be, but she could be the go-between. You know, you'd go to her to get God's ear, you know. Right. Did I ever, I I wanted to, that reminds me of this really interesting story. I was working at Denny's. I worked at Denny's for many years. And um, one of the waitresses that I was working with, many of them were Catholic, and I was learning uh, witchcraft at the time, or Wicca. And, um, I was asking them about praying to Mary because I, you know, come across uh, uh, evangelical Christians who said Christ, uh, Catholicism is not Christianity, and I was like, ah, that's wrong. <laughs> but so I was talking to this worker, and I and I was asking her like, but so why do you pray to Mary? Like, what is that? And she was saying, well, it's like in your family. If you want something, if you want something from your dad. Do you ask your dad outright if you can have that thing? Or do you go to your mom and ask her to ask your dad for you because she has greater sway over your dad uh, and his decisions? Uh, So there we see the religion reflecting a family dynamic that she was socialized into. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it sure is. Yeah, people would pray to Mary as the intermediary, um, or they would pray to various saints depending on what their like what their relationship with Catholicism was. Because many times, you know, Catholicism as the 
religion that came in and took over many pagan traditions said, hey, you, we're going to take you over, but don't worry, you can still have your gods. They're just in the form of our saints, so you should have no problem assimilating. <laughs> so then the, the people who assimilate into Catholicism are utilizing their old practices and their old ways, but with the new faces of the saints. And so they would pretty much practice um, forms of, you know, traditional magic, but through a different cosmology, through a different um, religious terminology. Right. Well, and, you know, now that you've said that, I mean, okay, maybe this, I'm really oversimplifying this, but maybe that's the whole point. It's so simple, we overlook it. All right, let's face it. All of this, mm-hmm. what we're talking about, it's all human-made dogma, especially man-made mm-hmm. dogma. So is yes. it any wonder it reflects the family dynamic? We've just sort of overlaid, you know, uh, what we do, how we interact with each other, you know, uh, mm-hmm. on our religion. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Like we're in a patriarchal society where the father of the household has power, and this is reflected in our uh, politics, in our economy, in our religion, right? So it's always reflected throughout all the different institutions within society completely. Um, And, you know, when I went into this research, the reason that I did was because people would ask me about witchcraft and magic and spells, and I would just sort of like jokingly respond that like, well, spells are just like prayer but with props. And I've heard lots of magical practitioners say that. Uh, And it's sort of like this common understanding that, like, we put a lot of theatrics into our prayers. um, And we also believe there is inherent power in the prayer where I would argue that a lot of times, and I'd have to do research to find the numbers on this, so I don't have numbers, but I'm I'm postulating this idea. A lot of times uh, practitioners of Abrahamic religions, though they believe that they have faith in the power of their prayer, I would argue that they probably don't actually have that faith, that that's why they're so um, antagonistic of anything that's other, because they're, the foundation of their faith is rather shaky. The, the well, You have to have you know experiences of that God in order, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but you know what that just made me think about? All right, you you mm-hmm. said, um, let me see, I'm trying to remember how you said it. You said that, you know, you were you were drawing the distinction between the, uh, the Abrahamic person who prays versus the mm-hmm. pagan who, what was the expression you used? They pray with what? Uh, uh, they pray with um, props. With props, okay. Well, okay, all right, let's take that a little bit further. You know, whenever, Uh I mean, all the Wicca classes that I've had, um, you know, comparing it to my Catholic background, okay, so you Mm -hmm. you go to church or you kneel down at your bed and, you know, you're sort of this quiet little mouse in prayer. Well, in Mm -hmm. Wicca, you know, it's Mm -hmm. this whole idea that your spell okay, mm-hmm. a.k.a. your prayer, um, mm-hmm. it will have more juice. You know, it mm-hmm. might be more likely to be heard if it's got mm-hmm. a lot of energy behind it. You know, ah. hence, you know, yeah, so hence the... You know, uh, you know the the uh, you know you you try to you know build up the energy in a in a ritual. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. send off the spell. You know that mm-hmm. that whole thing. Or, you know, I mean, it can be dancing, it can be drumming, but also, mm-hmm. I don't know whether you've mm-hmm. noticed, but I've noticed that 
the prayers that I do that have the most emotion behind it seem mm-hmm. to be the ones that are the most effective. You know, so oh, yeah. I don't I don't know, but it makes me think that maybe the difference is the energy put into it. So if you're taught as a Christian to just mm-hmm. you know, I'm not talking about the the Baptists, you know, who sing mm-hmm. and dance. I mean they're building up lots mm-hmm. of energy. But you right. know, as a Catholic you know, so yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so you you know, it as a Catholic you you know, you stand up, you kneel down, you sit. You stand up, you kneel down, mm-hmm. you sit. You know, you don't build mm-hmm. up any energy when you're praying in church. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Although uh, I, my so theory behind that is why they—that's why they sing at the at the beginning of. Do they sing at the beginning of mass? Because I've only been to Catholic church a handful sometimes, of times. But I sometimes. Sometimes. And then when I was at the Christian churches, um, Pentecostal and then also uh, Evangelical, there would be singing at the beginning, right, and then uh, the sermon, and then singing at the end. And I always, when I sort of compared the two, I always thought, okay, this is where they're raising the energy. Yeah, it could be. It could be. Mm-hmm. Also, um, well, something that kept popping into my head is in Christian understanding, I think there's a Bible verse that says, gather two or more in my name and I will be there to hear your prayers. So even in the Christian understanding, getting together to do prayer brings more power and brings God there. Whereas yeah. a singular person praying uh, may be heard, but not as, not necessarily. <laughs> Yeah, it's not going to be as powerful, uh, you know, of an impact or, um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe have as big of an effect. Well, well, then we'll think about that when then you look at maybe a voodoo practitioner. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they actually, uh, you know, they'll let the, you know, the, the deity or the loa ride them mm-hmm. and everything, yeah. possess mm-hmm. them. So that's a whole different kind of magic and prayer and ritual. I got man. I, I got to tell you about that. I got to tell you about that. I was talking to an anthropology, anthropology friend of mine, and she was telling me about the Pentecostal snake charmers, and that the language that they used when talking about uh, their practice, they said that they would let the Holy Spirit spirit enter inside them, and once they were uh, entered by the Holy Spirit, then they would pick up the snake and dance with the snake. And as she was telling me this, I was like, oh, my goodness, you are saying the exact same thing as voodoo possession, but not using those words. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. They're just, right. uh, it's, just, it's a form of prayer. And interestingly, in sociology of religion, they have, when they're talking about magic, they talk about mana uh, as a form of, like, ethereal power. But then they also uh, say that mana is considered synonymous with Darshan in Hinduism, divine grace in Christianity, Manito among the Alangokins, uh, Maxpi by the Crow, uh, Orenda by the Iroquois. So, like in all these different traditions, there is a word that means mana or the ethereal energy. And I thought it was very interesting that they considered divine grace in Christianity as being the same. Huh. Well, and, yeah. and you know, and that that to me sounds like another word for channeling. Mhm. Or yeah, mhm. Yeah. So it like depends on the cosmo co- the cosmology that you understand is how you interpret the same actions, right? But with yeah. a different words. Right. That's right. what I was that's what I was working towards is that it takes the context of the society to define these words. 
and that they and, were all and, basically saying the same thing, but through different contexts. And isn't it funny how different religions can't see the similarities, you know? Right, um, right. You know, a friend of mine, um, uh, I, I, I think she was studying anthropology. Um, she she was just, you know, over the moon one day telling me this story about these Christians who were doing a spell. Well, they didn't know they were mm-hmm. doing a spell. They thought they were doing a prayer. Well, okay, and again, mm-hmm. the difference, what's the difference? Prayer, spell. But to them, they were doing a prayer. And the prayer was mm-hmm. these women got together at one of the women's house because mm-hmm. her husband was having an affair. So they decided they were going to um, write the name of the the woman that the husband was having the affair with uh, on pieces of paper and <laughs> burn it in a bowl. And I'm oh thinking, you know what I'm saying? Now you tell them. Yeah, check this that, out. Sociologically, <laughs> look at this. Why did they put the woman's name and not the husband's? That oh, well, the, the woman always gets the blame. You know, the philanthropy right? husband exactly. never gets the blame. Exactly. Looking at how they define, like, how they decide what they're doing. The fact that they don't call that a spell, they call it a prayer. The fact that they focus on the woman and not the man. These are all very indicative of the society that we're in. So, I'm sorry, I continue. Well, it, well, and then, on, then it reminded me, too, of when I was taking these Kabbalah classes and I thought, okay, this is going to be a lot of fun because these Kabbalah folks, they're doing witchcraft and they don't even know it. I mean, they were doing mm-hmm. hand readings and face readings and, you know, they do astrology and they do so many things that are Wicca-oriented. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I said to one of the women over at the Kabbalah Center in L.A., mm-hmm. I said, you know, you guys are doing the same thing Wiccans do. Wiccans, mm-hmm. what are Wiccans? I said, well, you know, <laughs> witchcraft. Ah, oh, you know, her eyes got big like I was the devil or something, you know. Right. So right. they don't. Think, <laughs> yeah, because I feel like I feel like most magical practitioners, at least the ones that I'm interacting with, know that like Kabbalah practice is a form of Jewish mysticism and it interacts with the magical arts. Uh, so the yeah, fact that they yeah. didn't know that is stunning. <laughs> well, yeah, you know it, it. Well, you know they're in. You know, here we go back again to their little bubble. Um, you know, they. Uh, I, I have no doubt that this this young woman, um, you know, has only heard the baggage. You know, the negative connotations of what witchcraft is. She had no mm-hmm. idea that she was doing the. Ex, you know, the very same things. And right. I, I don't know, right. I, I, you know, there. I don't know. And there are people who will insist that spell work and prayer is different, but at least to mm-hmm. me, it's really not. Yeah, yeah. For me, it, it, from from what I can find, it's basically the same. It's just a different orientation of the practitioner to the outcome. Where in witchcraft traditions, um, the the orientation of the practitioner is that change can be affected quite easily. All you have to do is know how to do it. You know what I mean? Once you figure it out, an initiate will know how to, like, once you figure it out, uh, initiates at a certain point have all, all figured it out. It it becomes, I would say, even relatively easy to expect a response, to expect something to occur. Whereas in 
Christianity, from what I've seen, right, it, people do not expect actual miracles. And when you have a miracle, everybody, you know, rejoices, but it's so rare compared to... Right, uh, right, So it's right. the orientation towards the outcome that seems to be a big difference, but not the action. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like the orientation of the practitioner to the divine, to mana, to the deity uh, is is more empowered uh, because it is a practice that requires you to gather power, whereas in the Abrahamic traditions, you are not to gather power. That is specifically not something you do. And and uh, define what you mean when you say gather power. Are you talking about mm-hmm. like, um, you know, uh, working on the full moon or the waxing moon or whatever it is, depending on what, what your prayer or your spell is? Or mm-hmm. de- de- define what you mean, I guess, by how the power. pagan practitioner mm-hmm. goes goes into it from a more powerful point of view. Okay. Um, so in, I guess, you know, sometimes I mix up uh, terms. I would say the gathering of power is definitely a shamanic thing that you have to do. Um, and what that, how I understand gathering power is that you collect mana, and I think they even talk about this in, like, sociology of religion. You gather mana through experiences that would empower you. So in a in the Peruvian shamanic tradition, let's say, soul retrieval, as you go back and reclaim soul parts that had been lost through trauma, you are increasing your energy field and thus are able to affect change um, on more mana than you did before you were able to reclaim those soul parts. Uh, and similarly in magic, as you practice through the wheel of the year and through the full moons and the dark moons, you associate yourself with the particular energies. And the more you practice, the more you're capable and able to focus and intend and direct your energy with the flow of the energy to influence change. So you are increasing your power. Does that make sense? I see. Well, and you know, yeah. that reminds me too, you know, uh, our our wisdom circle um, uh, back in March, we did um, that Artemis ritual. And Artemis was supposed to be like one of the most powerful goddesses of ancient times. Zeus even used her image to um, enhance his magic, supposedly. And oh, wow. what, come, what, what comes along with Artemis is the Ephesian letters. And those were supposed to be some of the most powerful Greek words of ancient times. You know, people believed that by saying them, writing them on your body, you know, writing them down, uh, you know, I guess uh, on clay tablets or whatever, that they would harness that magical power of Artemis to... um, you know, I, I guess I guess you'd say to do their bidding. You know, to achieve whatever they were trying um, to achieve. Um, mm-hmm. So that that might be another form of gathering power, I guess. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I would say that that is gathering power in that context completely. Interesting. Um, interesting. Completely. Yeah. So so do you? It, it, uh, all right. So then. All right. So let's. Let's go back to witchcraft and religion. What, mm-hmm. And maybe this really just all depends on definition and who's to say whose definition is right, okay? Let's maybe establish <laughs> that. But, mm-hmm. but um, is, can, you, can you consider witchcraft a religion? This is what I'm finding. 
Yes, and let me give you, yes and no. <laughs> let me give you the sociological definition of religion. It's a mouthful, so I'm going to read it, and it's going to be a mouthful. <laughs> religion okay. is a set of beliefs and rituals by which a group of people seeks to understand, explain, and deal with a world of complexity, uncertainty, and mystery by identifying a sacred canopy of explanation and reassurance under which to live. A sacred canopy is religion's function as a protective cover, shielding society from chaos and individuals from anomie, or feelings of normlessness, rootlessness, and nothingness. So it's a big mouthful, right? Um, Uh And in that definition, I would say, yeah, witchcraft's totally a religion. But witchcraft doesn't have a unifying, like, um, core set of beliefs that everybody adheres to. Generally, every... Has, um, every pantheon has a different understanding of the cosmos, not necessarily, but to a degree. So there's no central um, organization of witchcraft. Mm-hmm. And in that way, it's not a religion because religion in society ch- tends to have a central organization as set rituals and ways that it prescribes for you to live. My right. argument that that I'm seeming to find is that this definition of religion tends to come from a patriarchal model, right, of having Mm -hmm. um, one sort of authoritarian figure or like the central organizing principle, whereas modern neo-paganism will never have that organizing principle because its basic foundation is freedom. And maybe religion is evolving towards not needing a central organizing figure which is very scary to some people. Um, (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, so that that makes perfect sense to me, you know. Um, You know, because, so so basically, and and let me say back to you what I think you said. So basically we are defining religion based on how the majority of people maybe on the planet experience religion as a Jew, as a Christian, as a Muslim. But if if we had, if humanity had evolved differently, say Anthony and Cleopatra, you know, won at the Battle of Actium, and we were all living in pagan, um, you know, pagan-dominated religions, then that might not be our definition of religion. Right. Because, you know, you have, you know, all of these different pagans have their own deities, have their own creation Mm -hmm. stories, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe even, I mean, at the most we might have in common is maybe the wheel of the year. Mm -hmm. Although, like, go ahead. No, no, because I I was just going to say it, and and maybe that's even stretching it. And it depends on Mm -hmm. how you define pagan, too. I mean, there's so right. many ifs, ands, and buts. <laughs> right, right. And I would say that even the the paganism with multiple deities at that time was still governed by the political elite at the time, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, mm-hmm. as we've reconstructed it in modern times, our understanding of those deities is probably different than it was contextually for their society. Okay. But that's as far as I go with that. I don't know. I don't know. Past that, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. So, 
so where does so where does this leave say somebody like um you know somebody like you who is mm-hmm. in academia um mm-hmm. do you do you when you talk to other academics uh, academics and you um try to put forth your theory that witchcraft is a religion um mm-hmm. I, I guess i just wonder do you get much pushback do they understand what we just um, said. You know, right. I, I've been talking to anthropologists, and anthropologists agree witchcraft is a religion. Um, so it would be sociologists, and I don't actually, I don't have a circle of sociology of religion friends. <laughs> so I don't, I haven't really talked about this much with sociologists. Um, though they might point to, and this is what I'm finding, um, currently in our context of society, Wicca, witchcraft, neo-paganism is deviant because the norm of society is a monotheistic Abrahamic religion. So um, deviance being a part of witchcraft or current witchcraft expression uh, makes it different than religion because usually religion is used as a tool for social control, so it upholds the norm. So to be deviant from the norm, right, makes it Mm -hmm. definitely an emergent religion or um, a new religious movement. Um, so I would say sociologists probably agree with that. Um, from what I can tell, the academics don't agree that pre-modern witchcraft is religion because you can't take the word religion out of the social context. And that's kind of difficult for me. I'm going to have to find some more academics to really, um, talk that through so that I can understand why that makes a difference. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that sort of takes us full circle to and that sort of takes us full circle to where we began the, the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um but you know, it look, to the untrained me, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I would just define religion as a group that has deities, that has mm-hmm. traditions, that has practices. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. you know, why does it have to have the same structure as the big three, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I mean, agree. I don't know. It, it it seems like it 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 seems like a conformist way to define religion, and I guess I'm just exactly. too much of a deviant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. I would I would say I agree with you completely. To me, it seems like any sort of definitions and rituals and practices that deal with the unknown or the sacred um, are that's a religious practice. The interesting thing is I'm also coming across um, like an article about re- the reemergence of shamanism in Siberia um, and also some magical practitioners that I have talked to who say witchcraft is not a religion. You need to not call it a religion because the layman understands religion as dogma and this is not that. Um, so, but again, it's still a religious belief. You have to believe the that your interaction with the deities is real, and since that can never be proven, that goes under this this understanding of working with the sacred. <laughs> so it's still right. religion. Um, right. I would right. also argue, and this is what I found in my research, um, that modern neo-paganism, Wicca, neo-witchcraft, etc., um, the 
relationship of the practitioner with the belief system, with the religion, is that it is constantly evolving, that you co-create your reality with the deities and spirits that you interact with, and it's that fluidity that defines it. So I think that's just radical. Yeah, I think yeah. it's a radical understanding, and people are like, how do, we t- how do we call that religion if I define religion as dogma? But we only re- define religion as dogma because the dominant religion currently is very dogmatic and controlling. Well, yeah, because as soon as you said, you, you, I, I can't remember now exactly what you just said five seconds ago about the dogma, <laughs> but, but it's this whole, like, oh, oh, it was the practitioners who didn't believe um, witchcraft was religion. They didn't want to. They didn't want witchcraft classified under religion because yeah. they felt like that gave uh, that suggested you were adhering to dogma. Well, but mm-hmm. okay, we have. To, I, I, all right, I, I, maybe I'm wrong about I, this. I agree with you. I agree with you. We are adhering to dogma. Yeah. <laughs> well, because no matter, we all have our own dogma. You yeah. know. Uh-huh. Yeah. You, yeah. Whether I totally we want to. Yeah, so in a way that's silly because we might not be adhering to the status quo's dogma of what religion is, but mm-hmm. I mean just just go down to uh you know the local uh goddess circle. I mean you'll have 10 different versions of what being a priestess is, what um mm-hmm. you, you know what uh, uh you know uh, how to do ritual kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. You know they all mm-hmm. have their own dogma and I'd be willing to bet they're ones that'll say if you don't believe the you know you don't see it the way I see it you're not a real priestess or you're not really mm-hmm. a ritualist, you know? I mean mm-hmm. it it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> Um, but, but when, it's like when, the techniques we use to define ourselves and categorize ourselves as different from the masses or different from uh, the norm, when in actuality, when in actual practice, you can't practice magic without dogma because you need to have rules in which you interact and engage in. If you don't yeah, have you those have rules, then it's all free-for-all. And I have not met a practitioner yet that has no rules. <laughs> Well, I mean, well, they yeah, might be flexible I mean, and fluid, but that's the dogma how, is that they're flexible and fluid. <laughs> it, well, yeah, because how could, say, you and I and five of our friends get together and do a ritual if we didn't have some basis of common mm-hmm. belief, a.k.a. Right. dogma? <laughs> right, <laughs> yes. Exactly. exactly. We're like, <laughs> we, we talking, but we're talking in circles. Do you, you realize that, right? <laughs> right, right, yeah, it, it, that this is all seemingly very silly, and why would we? Why do we even have to go? You know, why do we have to explain that? You know, these are the same things. But I think it's because I don't know. I think that's I don't know. I don't know why. Why does academia even exist? I don't know. <laughs> well, you know. I, all right. So uh, so let's think about that for a second. I mean, why mm. do we? Ha- why do we have to have this exercise that we have tonight? I think it was really right. useful. You know, I think it was useful on so many different levels because it shows us that we're actually a lot more similar than we're different. We just use different language, um, you you know, for one thing. And, um, Mm -hmm. you you know, and this whole idea of, um, you know, conforming and dogma. And, I mean, I think these are really important conversations that we ought to be having as we... um, you know, try to create more more tolerance and interconnection. Oh yeah, definitely. And I I don't know. You know, so I guess I I think um, 
I don't, I don't know. I just love this conversation because especially when you can put the the voodoo practitioner in the same room with the snake charmer, in the same room with the, you know, the the person who's speaking in tongues and thinks they're receiving the Holy Spirit, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but but you know, but imagine that in your mind mind's eye, you know, mm-hmm, um, right, th- right. those three people would never in a million years think that they were all doing the same thing, right? And that's sort of where like the um, the overarching story that is told to the adherence of a belief system becomes problematic. If the if the dogma says this is the true religion and all other religions, even if they look like they're doing the same thing, are actually the devil tricking you. Um, that's where we have this very divided society where people can't see their similarities for fear, for fear of hell or damnation or some other form of being reprimanded by something that's uh, evil. You know what I mean? Like, it's like when we have dogmas or cosmologies that say this is the only way, uh, then we have exclusion and difference and turmoil. Right. So yeah. Getting and, and people you... to understand their similarities is oftentimes very difficult because their worldview specifically states that there is no other similarities but theirs. Their, yeah. you know, their definitions, their words are the only right ones, and everybody else is going to hell. Yeah, I, I mean, think of the think of the Christian ministers out there that are telling their congregations that yoga creates separation in their body so that the devil can enter inside them. I mean, yeah, I that blows my mind. I, like, I know. I really am like, <laughs> oh wow, wow. I feel um, like you know, yoga would be a really powerful practice to talk to God, but I guess you're going to keep people really afraid of any other cultural practice. Well, okay, but let's let's be honest here. You don't want people thinking that they can talk to God if you're a priest or a minister or a rabbi. Ah. Man, you'd be irrele- you'd be irrelevant, wouldn't you? <laughs> right, right. Which you is know, you sort of just lost all your power. The, right, the Protestants uh, were the protest. They were the ones that said we can talk to God ourselves. And then, uh, isn't it isn't it funny how? Then it turns in as it evolves. The people in power want to keep that power and keep their practitioners from having that direct relationship with God necessarily. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's like once they get theirs, they don't want you to have yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, um, exactly. Gianna, I think we might have someone um, who called in to ask a question. Are you open to maybe right. a question? Um, yeah, yeah let, let's see. I don't know. They might just be listening, and and that's okay too. Uh, but let me just unmute. Um, mm-hmm. Hi, um, I see you're on the switchboard from the 512 area code. Did you have a question for uh, Gianna? Hi, hi Gianna, hi Karen. Yes, my name is Jennifer. I'm calling from Fort Worth, Texas. This is a very beautiful, interesting conversation. How are you doing? Doing good. How are well, you? We're, we're great. Great. So I have, uh, I, I guess, a, a, a parable or a, you know, a comment, um, and maybe you would like to hear your feedback. So um, as briefly as I can, uh, recently uh, in between semesters before graduating with my master's, I read a book um, titled, Without You, There Is No Us, My Time with the Sons of North Korea's Elite. This was written mm. by Suki Kim. And somehow she, she kind of got under the guise as a uh, Christian minister, uh, missionary 
and she mm-hmm. taught English um, in, in, in North Korea, which we know so little about, right? And mm-hmm. while she was there, she realized the kids, these were literally the sons of North Korea's elite. Uh, mm-hmm. And she saw how they interacted. And the you know, Kim Jong-un and then his father, Jong-il, and this dynasty um, has created such, uh, I mean, these are, they're deities, right? And these, these children have no other concept of of potentials outside of what they are taught. For example, one day, um, Suki Kim said, look, we're going to play a game. The game is truth or lie. And so they made up these cards and they passed around these cards to the kids and they had to act as if they were saying a truth or a lie. And one of the truths was, or a lie, was I went skiing in New York last year. And these kids were only supposed to speak English in class. But for the first time ever, Suki Kim heard her kids in the class speaking Korean to each other. And they were asking, what is skiing? What is skiing? So finally the kids um, regurgitate North Korea has the best ski slopes ever in the world, which they do. They have none. Um, but they, they they got around together and they talked about it, and they go, oh, that's what skiing is. Yes, I know what skiing is. I didn't go skiing in New York, but we have the best ski slopes here. So they got around together and they agreed, we are the best. This is an interesting model. And so I, I will go on from that um, to talk about um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, um, wrote um, on a book called On Death and Dying in the 60s. And it, 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 it covered the stages of loss and grief, right? Denial, mm-hmm. no way! Um, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And there's a really funny YouTube video with a, a giraffe thinking in quicksand on this. Um, and I think that what happens is a lot of times with these, especially you know, the, the Christian mindset, is more focused on death and dying as opposed mm-hmm. to living in the here and now. When we go back to the goddess and we only look, we only look at it from the perspective of, of uh, you know, Isis, Aphrodite. Um, mm-hmm. When we look at these ancient teachings, these are more about the here and now and the search for, like you said earlier, freedom, um, which happiness, love. And if we were to apply the stages of loss and grief, Denial, no way. Anger, F, bargaining, please God help me. Depression, oh, this is horrible. Acceptance. Mm. And then finally going, holy crap, we just hit rock bottom. To every single negative belief system in our life, and we were to go, oh, now I've reached this enlightened state. That's what that's what this is all about, I think. I think this, this life, it doesn't, you know, gosh. We we could talk for weeks on this subject about how many belief systems have ever existed that we know of, that we know of. And so when we, I think what happens is some belief systems have been categorized towards the death and dying, and some belief Mm -hmm. systems have been categorized into I can create my own reality. There is no worry. Isn't that mm-hmm. strange? I would like to hear you speak about that. The random um, thing that I said. 
So, yeah, like, uh, so when you talk about the focus being on death and dying, I totally agree in the sense that, like, when it is a religion that is focused on salvation, then the salvation is in the in the death sequence after death. You um, are either chosen to go to heaven or hell, and there's so many so much emphasis put on where you will end up um, that you're that you are more likely to suffer in the now because you are looking towards the future future time oriented and specifically focused on what happens after death. And in different cosmological understandings of death. Um, like uh, in the Egyptian, right, isn't your heart weighed against that of a feather? So if you live well, then you also get um, rewarded in the afterlife. So in that particular understanding, right, it would still have uh, anxiety or antagonism that has to do with what happens when you die. Um, I think each religious practice has a different association with the the death um, process, Uh if you're in a cosmology that believes in reincarnation, then you might be living good or trying to live good in order to reincarnate at a higher level. But if you um, don't have this focus on the death and you are just living in the now, then you are free from that future time orientation and able to make decisions without that being a variable that you weigh in on. Does that make sense? Well, and Gianna, I wonder too if we if we were more focused on the now, um, and and we didn't have the conditioning to worry about what happens to us when we die. Um, I wonder if if um, humans would be harder to control, because oh, yeah. if all, all we thought we had was this then, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we wouldn't tolerate so much of the um, the abuse and the exploitation mm-hmm. and everything that is, you know, sort of heaped upon us, you know, in patriarchy mm-hmm. and capitalism and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would definitely agree, agree that our current um, religious sort of model in Western society does... Uh, privilege capitalist capitalism and um and the government and economy that we live under definitely um and at the same time i feel like religion is always a form of social control so it depends on the society if the society yeah. uh begins to concern itself with the well-being of the people and that they have a good life um and that the focus would would be on that then i would possibly see a society that everybody has a place to live, everybody has a bit of land, um, everybody has their needs met, right? But that's not the model that we live under. So so I don't know. I think um, as we evolve religions and our society, hopefully, you know, activists and others um, can begin to put out ideas that it's not all about, you know, salvation in the afterlife, that we need to also live a good life in the here and now. Um, and I'm not sure what would need to evolve in our religious understanding of that in order to promote that. And I and I don't know that our governing elite would want us to figure that out. So, Right, right, absolutely. <laughs> well, Gianna, we are almost out of time. And I want to thank the caller. Um, what was your name? Jennifer. Um, my name is Jennifer. Jennifer, thank, thank you. you for, thank you for listening and yeah, calling in and 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 offering um offering your comments on the conversation tonight. I I appreciate you taking my call and I and 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 just to 
last thing, I think it's all built around fear. When we talk about control, it's the mm-hmm. fear. Oh, yeah, it's, it's all built around the fear, and you don't want to be wrong. So when you have groups and cultures that are uh, societally impressions, you are wrong. You will be ostracized. You will be outcast. You will be damned to hell, say, uh, mm-hmm. if you go against the grain, then that's what's keeping us lost in this so-called prison planet that we that we so gracefully uh, describe uh, as, as our conditioned third-dimensional experience. You guys had a True. great conversation. I appreciate you taking my call. Oh, oh no you. problem. Thank you for calling appreciate in. It. Well, and, and, you know, and just to piggyback on, on um, what she just said, um, mm-hmm. oh, God, and here, did I lose my train of thought? Um, fear. Talk about fear. It, it's fear. Yeah, this this whole idea of um, you know this this is all around fear. You know, I, I you know you think about uh, Mormons, for instance, or or I guess really any people who are immersed in their spirituality. I mean, so much of it. Um, it, it, they're, they're so inter, it's intertwined with their work, it's intertwined with their family, it's intertwined with their social life, and to question it, to go against the grain, you know, to use the expression Jennifer used, you know, to go against it, um, you know, you, then you become, you know, you, you become ostracized. So uh, it, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you, you're, you're um, you know, you become a prisoner um you know in in sort of another way you know um right. you know you you can't even get away if you if you wanted to unless you're willing to start all over again somewhere else mhm and i would argue that it's impossible to start all over again somewhere else without bringing the tenets of the society that you were raised in with you and you know what? I am a perfect example of that. I left the Bible Belt of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. I'm here in California. I was a Catholic. Now I'm a goddess advocate. But as you so, in, you know, you were insightful enough to realize, you know, I, I sort of, I, you know, I, I see goddess in a sense and do the goddess thing through the lens of the Christian conditioning, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, in a way, they do. You know, uh, Jesus sort of just got replaced by ISIS in a, in a way, mm-hmm. it, right. except for the fact, like we said, you know, God of spirituality is a spirituality of liberation, as opposed mm-hmm. to you know marginalization and women being second class citizens and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, Anyway, um, well, it has been fun, it's so so yes. much fun, and, and we could go on, but we're almost out of time here tonight. Um, I I want to thank you, Gianna, but before we uh, before we go, was there anything uh, we didn't talk about, it, uh, you know, about this subject that um, maybe you wanted to make the point of for listeners before we go? Yeah, no. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, when okay. I present on Saturday, I believe I will be more organized and structured in my talk, uh, but I think we hit most of the points that I'm going to make. There might be some stuff that I, that's rattling around in there, but I'll save it for Saturday. <laughs> okay. Okay, sounds good. There'll be something fresh for Saturday. And, you know, it's up to you, Saturday, how you want to do the talk. Um, you know, mm. you can either do the talk in the form of a lecture or you can do it like Sabina did um, you know, last time at the, the Venice Roundtable where it was, you know, she opened it up to group comment and discussion. That's totally up to you. It's your call. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Okay. Um, well, 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 thank you. Thank you so much. I always have so much, uh, so much fun talking to you. And um, I, you know, I wondered, um, do you have a website or anything? If um, I if do, listeners- yeah. If people want to look me up, my website is giannachakelli.com. That's G-I-A-N-A-C-I-C-C-H-E-L-L-I. Uh, and my information is on there. Okay. And you know what? I think we need T-shirts. Well, I think we need T-shirts with the big with a big D on the front for our you know for <laughs> for our proud deviant behavior and 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 place in society. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, thank listen, thank you, so you much, thank you so much um, for being on the show tonight, and I look forward to seeing you uh, Saturday at the Goddess Temple. Indeed. Thank you. Okay. Good night. All right. Good night. Well, I uh, I enjoyed that. I hope you did, too, and uh, I want to uh, thank Jennifer again for calling in, and uh, I know so many of you listen from the archives. You won't have the opportunity uh, to call in, but... Um, uh, you can always communicate with me or my guests if uh, if you have a question later. Uh, but before tonight is over, uh, we have a word from Joe Carson. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree is. And I came out of it. This is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, um, you were just listening to uh, Serena Roney Dougal, and uh, she's just one of the many uh, scholars who uh, speak about um, earth energies and sacred sexuality and the goddess as Gaia in uh, Joe Carson's film uh, titled Dancing with Gaia. Uh, it uh, The film features 15 visionaries uh, who give us tools to feel the life of the planet within ourselves. Uh, the DVD comes with a 45-page mini-book and costs just $20, and you can get your own at uh, dancingwithgaia.com. And uh, please don't forget the upcoming Goddess Conferences, uh, the one in Nashville, the middle of July, and uh, you shouldn't wait too much longer if you think you want to uh, sign up for that because the discounts are going to go away. You can find that one at divaoflightnetwork.com, divaoflightnetwork.com. And if you're in Southern California, you also have the goddessspiritrising.com uh, conference coming up uh, the middle of September, the 10th through the 13th. Um, I uh, am happy to say I am going to be presenting there. I'll also be on a panel uh, about uh, trying to promote uh, inclusiveness uh, in the community. And, um, of course, our Joseph Campbell Roundtable is at the wonderful Goddess Temple of Orange County this Saturday. Uh, what a wonderful place if you have not seen it yet. Um, 
there is a larger-than-life-sized uh, statue of Sekhmet, the Egyptian lion-headed goddess, on a three-foot-tall pyramid throne uh, in the sanctuary. Uh, it is uh, a marvelous place uh, of beauty um, for a house of goddess, and it is one of the few on the face of uh, of our mother Gaia. And uh, you owe it to yourself to see it, and uh, maybe you might even want to become um, a member of the temple and help them do their work, which is teaching about goddess and uh, empowering uh, empowering women. And, uh, you know, if you uh, like what you've been hearing tonight or in past shows, I hope you'll show your appreciation and support. Please go to my KarenTate.com website. Once there, go to the Goddess Store page. Uh, scroll down all the way uh, to the very bottom. Uh, while you're scrolling down, if you like one of the books, uh, I hope you'll buy one. Uh, but at the very bottom of the page, there is a PayPal button uh, that enables you to make any donation whatsoever. And it would be greatly appreciated, and it helps me pay for airtime to be able to continue to bring you the wonderful guests that you have come to know and love each week. Uh, and yes, I have been paying for it out of my pocket, um, but it always helps uh, when uh, some of the audience uh, chips in. So I think that uh, about uh, does it for tonight. Um, I guess I should remind you to please go to my Facebook pages and like those pages. Uh, there's a Karen Tate page, a Karen Tate author page, which is the new one. Uh, there are also the Voices of the Sacred Feminine page, the Goddess Calling page, and uh, the Walking in Ancient Paths page, and uh, the, finally for my other book, Sacred Places of Goddess, uh, there's that page too. So, um, I hope you will like all of them as well as hit the follow button on uh, the show page here on Blog Talk uh, and become one of the Voices of the Sacred uh, Feminine Family. And by doing that, you're sure to get notice of guests that come on the show each week so you won't miss anything. Well, my dear listeners, that about does it for tonight. And um, I hope uh, the weather is beautiful where you are. And uh, you have a wonderful Memorial Day weekend planned. And I will be back with you next week. And my guest on the 28th uh, is going to be uh, Andy Thomas. And uh, in this moment, I can't remember what our topic is, but uh, you can easily check uh, on my show page there. So uh, May 28th, uh, I'll be back, and I look forward to being with you. Thank you so much. Uh, for all your comments. Thank you for tuning in each week. Uh, you are gas in my tank. And um, I guess go out there and find your sacred roar. Good night. Time to awaken.